This morning we're going to see that as as believers in Christ, we are called not only to pursue good deeds, but to avoid what is unprofitable and worthless. Now, if you have children and are over 30 years old or God has granted you a measure of maturity, even at a younger age, you know that time flies. Time is a precious commodity that we just can't get back. Time is like water rushing under a bridge, and yet with that analogy, it kind of fails because even water, as you know, you know, it eventually flows to a lake or it flows to a sea and it evaporates and forms water droplets, falls to the earth as rain and comes back down and is flowing under some other river or bridge, you know, um, somewhere else. But time's not like that. Time's not recycled. Right? Time goes by and it's simply gone. God has created us and given us breath. And if you think about it, uh, we might get 70 or 80 years, some longer, some shorter, but 70 or 80 years, and then our earthly lives are over on this side of eternity. The Lord promises all his children a resurrected body, so it's not the end of the physical earth, but it's, end, it's the end of our, our earthly lives on this side of eternity. And, and the Bible co- compares human lives to flowers which are here today and gone tomorrow. That's pretty sobering. And God has, um, God has given his children a relatively small window to do good and profitable things, even if you live to be 90 or 100. It's a relatively small window. And, and reflect upon the fact that once he saves us and, and we believe in him, we are his child, he, he sets us on a new course. Whatever course of life we were living before for ourselves, he sets us on a new course to live for him. And it's really a, a course of good works, things that he wants us to do during that short window of time he has given us. God gives us the time we need to do the good works which he has prepared for us, that we would walk in them. We, we don't have time to waste. Satan is a time waster. He, he loves for the church to waste her time. He loves for you to waste your time. God gives us time to work. He gives us time to rest. This is not a call to being a workaholic. But he doesn't give us time to waste. God wants his children to engage in good deeds and profitable things, but also to avoid the unprofitable and the worthless things. With that introduction, let's turn to God's word, Titus 3, and I'd like to read verses 8 to 11 for you. You'll be looking at verse 9 this morning, but I want to read the context. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now what Paul does here, he he has has previously laid out the the grace of God that that saves us. And in light of that, he he is instructing us on how should we live? What do we do now that, that God has saved us and made us an heir? Right? Verse 8 tells us that we are to pursue 
good deeds, that we are to speak confidently of the things which we are taught in the Scriptures, the things that, that God wants us to proclaim with confidence and to live those out, and, and to be careful to engage in good deeds. That's an ongoing activity. But today we see that the Christian life is also about not just the things we pursue, but the things that we avoid. And here he's not talking about sin. That's taken for granted that we should avoid you avoid sin. What he's talking about particularly is is doing. He's talking about what you what you go do. Avoid what is worthless and unprofitable. Notice that verse nine is said in contrast to verse eight by the little word but at the beginning of the verse, but avoid foolish controversies. Now there are things here that, that Paul instructs Titus to avoid. As I mentioned, our lives are are really um, set to follow Christ. And so we're to turn our backs on the things we might normally pursue to avoid those and pursue the things that we should pursue. Now the word avoid there in verse 9 is a what's called a present imperative. That is, it's a command. And it's really given to Titus. You know, the, the, um, this whole section, verses 8 to 11, it, these are commands given to Titus. And Titus is to, to make sure that the church engages in good deeds, that he speaks with confidence. But I don't want you to think that, well, this isn't to you. Sometimes we hear the, the you know, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus are called pastoral epistles. And you might think, well, they're, they apply to pastors. I can just skip them. That's, that, that misses the point. Yes, there are a lot of specific uh, instructions to pastors in these letters, but much of this applies to um, to you as well, because you need to be able to support your pastors. You need to be able to support the whatever uh, instructions and actions that the pastors of a church um, provide for you. So Paul was giving um, Titus a command that he is to continually do. It's in a, it's in the present tense. So. By application, this flows down not just to Titus, but to the elders that Titus appointed in, in each of the cities and each of the churches on the island of Crete. It would pass down uh, to to elders, to our day and age, and, and to you all as you support the work of, of the church. Now, the, the word avoid in, uh, in the Greek is a word that means um, to, um, to basically... In, encircled by standing around some entity. So it, this is a word that has one meaning in, in the active voice, but it has a, another meaning when it's given in what's called the middle voice. English doesn't use that. We have active and passive. The Greek has a middle voice that, that does something a little different sometimes in, in, in the translation. And, and here, so that the word avoid is in, given here in the middle voice. And why I'm explaining that is because what this means is that the word changes its meaning a little bit. Instead of encircling something, you're avoiding that. You're like, you're like drawing a, a barrier around that thing to stay away from it. That, that's the idea there. Um, uh, uh, one Greek lexicon explains that in this usage, the word means to turn oneself about, uh, namely for the purpose of avoiding something. And hence, it's translated to, to shun or avoid. Paul uses the word in this sense uh, in 2 Timothy 2.16. He says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness. This command to avoid was given to Timothy and Titus, but, but was never 
meant just to be confined to them, as I have already explained. We are to avoid. You are to avoid it like false doctrine. You are to avoid it like you would avoid poison. You are to avoid it like those things that would make you sick or translate it. You are to, to avoid it uh, like you would want to avoid the coronavirus. All right? So that's, that's the idea. You don't want it. All right? Those of you who have had to understand, it's not pleasant. It's not fun. Right? This is far more serious than, than the coronavirus. Or to avoid it. Right? Not, not dabble with it. Not play with it. Avoid it. So Paul gives Titus four, four, four activities, or if you could say four errors that, that uh, are unprofitable and worthless and we need to avoid. The first one he, he gives us in the text is to avoid foolish controversies. Now notice that, that, that Paul doesn't say there um, in verse, verse 9, but avoid controversies. But avoid foolish controversies. Now, what does controversy mean? The word controversy comes from a Greek word that's, that's really related to the search for information and investigation into something, particularly uh, philosophical ideas. The word in the New Testament is used in the sense of debate or dispute, but with dispute here is, is not, doesn't carry the, the negative uh, connotations that we'll see in a later word when it talks about, later on in verse 8, when it talks about uh, sorry, verse 9, when it talks about avoiding disputes about the law. So there, disputes is a very uh, a negative, has a negative connotation. Here, it has the connotation of, of more of a, a, a edifying debate, a search for information. Um, the, the word in the New Testament uh, is used, that, as it's used in the New Testament, it was likely influenced by methods of investigation employed by Greek philosophers and, and scholars. And as one modern scholar points out, the fact that the dialogue and later the diatribe were well-known literary forms of philosophical investigation exercised some influence in this respect. So keep in mind, the, the idea here is, is that people would come together and discuss ideas. And in, in the worldly sense, they would just discuss them and, and try to hammer out the, their philosophical views. But Paul uses that particular idea uh, to, to, in this, with this word of, of controversy or debate. It's not necessarily a negative thing, which is why Paul puts the adjective there, foolish, in there with it as well. So we see a, an example of this investigative debate in, in John chapter 3. So if you would, turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and, and I'm going to, particularly we're going to look at verse 25. But I'm going to, just to get a little context, begin reading in verse 22. So, John chapter 3, being at verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John, who is John the Baptist, John was also baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there, and the people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now notice verse 25. There, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. The word discussion there is the same Greek word 
that's that's uh, translated in in Titus as uh, controversy, or you could translate it debate. There was a discussion. And look at verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, there's a some kind of conflict, not only about purification, but also by the fact that that many more people were going to Jesus for baptism than were coming had come to John. And so his disciples were puzzled by this, but, but John resisted the temptation to get jealous. He recognized he was not the Christ. Jesus was the Christ. And so, so John just says, he must increase, I must decrease. He is, he is the Messiah. But, but the point of that, there's no, there's no hint of any kind of uh, really condemnation on the disciples for having discussed about purification. That is, they're talking about baptism and that kind of John's baptism and probably the baptism of Jesus compared to some Jewish rites of, of baptism, uh, particularly the Gentiles would, would uh, be asked to engage in if they were converting to Judaism. So the idea there is, is uh, that it's okay to have controversy. It's okay to debate done in the right way, that, it, that it's not a foolish one. Now, Many Christians today, you can go back to Titus, many Christians today think that the Bible says avoid controversies, which is why I bring this up. Many churches today take this, uh, uh, take this um, approach. They avoid controversies in a sense of avoiding debates or avoiding anything that might cause disputes or, or might cause uh, people to not agree with, with uh, what is being said. Uh, when they do this, they think that doctrine divides, and so they avoid teaching on any and all doctrines that someone might disagree with. They won't teach the doctrines of grace. They won't teach election. They won't teach God's sovereignty. They won't teach on spiritual gifts. They won't teach on eschatology. And the list goes on and on and on, because if you taught it, then someone might disagree, and then there might be division, and you know, it just the list goes on and on, and so they've got this very limited portions of Scripture that they can actually teach from. And, and I think only teach in a, in a twisted sense because so much of the Bible is integrated one passage with another that it, it, to, to teach one accurately, you've got to also look at others that maybe you wouldn't go teach. They just want to teach about how loving and accepting Jesus was. And, and we, we totally affirm Jesus is love as, as God. And he was very accepting of people who knew that they needed a savior. But when when people emphasize that loving and accepting um, the actions of Jesus, that love people, show love and accepted them, they totally ne- neglect the fact that he was actually quite harsh with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with the false teachers and those who were leading people astray. He had some very harsh words for them. Now we could say that Jesus was never unloving and he never sinned. We totally affirm that. But yet he did say things that people disagreed with and disagreed with vehemently and disagreed with him so much, so strongly that they wanted to to kill him. Um, 
In avoiding the tougher parts of Scripture, people who avoid all controversy boil and strain away the meat of the Scriptures that were intended to feed us. And so what they're left with in this modified canon of Scripture is like, like bone broth that was never meant to be eaten alone. You know, bone broth offers some nutrients, but it was never meant to be eaten alone. Uh, you never, you never have gone home and say, gee, I want, you know, bone broth soup, and that's it, just nothing. That, you know, unless, you, if you are, you're really sick. Um, that's all you want. I understand that. But the, the point is that, that God gives us His whole word. God gives us some doctrines that, that, that yes, sometimes people disagree with. But those doctrines are like meat that's intended to feed your soul. You can't grow like God wants you to grow without chewing on that meat and, and digesting it. You know, we, God wants us to get the full flavor and benefit of His Word. We need to take in the whole counsel of God. And, and that is, uh, our souls are designed by God to thrive on all the Scriptures, not just some of them that we like, or that don't, you know, the ones that don't, don't, uh, people don't disagree with. So to help shape us into the image of Christ our Lord, we need the whole scriptures, even those doctrines that are hard to understand or hard to accept from a, from a, a human standpoint. That God's children are not called to avoid controversy or avoid debate in this sense is confirmed for us by the life of our Lord. Uh, as I mentioned, Jesus didn't avoid teaching or doing things that that might be the topic of conflict or controversy or debate or, or disputes with others. Jesus often taught and did things that were in direct conflict with the teaching of the scribes, the Pharisees, and Sadducees. He knew that healing people on the Sabbath day was going to cause problems. He could have avoided it and healed on Sunday. But that the, so that they might know Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, He healed on the Sunday. And by the way, doing... The way that the Jews had so framed the Sabbath, they had added to God's word and actually put God's word a higher, put their view uh, higher than God's word. So in healing on the Sabbath, Jesus, or even telling a man to carry his mat and go home, he was not uh, violating the law nor encouraging others to violate the, the Sabbath. That, that God's children are not called to avoid all controversy is confirmed through the life of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Turn to Acts 15 for a moment. It's helpful if we see these things in action and not just deal with them in kind of a theoretical sense. So Acts 15 gives us a little glimpse into that, into a what was a controversy for the early church. Begin reading in verse 1 of Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, just pause here a minute to say there, the particular issue is circumcision, but the larger issue is what do we do with the law? What do the Gentiles do with the law of Moses? That's the bigger question. I'll pick it up in verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate. See that word debate? That's the same Greek word we're talking about that's translated as controversy in Titus 3. There, uh, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. See, they, they, again, you see those connected issues. Specific issue is circumcision. circumcision. The bigger issue is observing the law of Moses. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth, but by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also, as they also are. But all the people kept silent and were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You see, it's happened in the, in the history of the church that, that questions arise. And so the church needs to work out what, what their view, what the response is going to be. In this case, the question was, what do we do? With the Gentiles who are being saved, do we instruct them to be circumcised? Do we instruct them to obey the law of Moses? That was the big question. And and church history is full of these. This is the only one of the church councils in Scripture. But but there have been many church councils throughout church history where we've done the same thing. Some issue arises. Some false doctrine arises. And and so there's a, 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 um, a gathering of those together in this case. It's the disciples, it's the elders of the local church in Jerusalem. They gathered together with the church to discuss these matters. It was a matter of controversy. But that they engaged on it and came out with a God-glorifying decision shows that it wasn't sinful controversy. It wasn't foolish controversy. It was edifying controversy. It's, It's controversy that the church needed to have because it's a very important question that needed to be answered. And so God chose to to record that all, all that's going on, all that went on with the um, council at Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council, to record that in Scripture for us. Now we'll come back to, to Acts 15 later when we examine the phrase disputes about the law. Uh, but I just want you to see that there's a, there is an example of Acts 15 of, of believers engaging in controversy or debate with, without sin. So, so Paul is not instructing Titus to avoid all controversy, but just foolish controversy, foolishness. The word foolish comes from the Greek word moros. Uh, some Greek words bear similarities to English word. The, the word moros comes from the word moron. Right? You understand that. We still use that word in, in English. It, it means foolish. It means stupid. It means... Um, to be without learning, without forethought, or without wisdom. And although the word foolish can simply imply a, a lack of knowledge, the, the, the scriptures often associate foolish thinking and behavior with moral culpability and spiritual rebellion. And, and that's really what, what uh, Paul is explaining in, in Titus 3. 
is, is this, this foolishness, these foolish controversies aren't just the ones about knowledge, as we'll see later in verses 10, 11. If, if someone just lacks knowledge, you can inform the knowledge and they'll say, okay, I didn't, I didn't know that. End of discussion. It doesn't become a dispute. What, what he's implying is that the persons that are engaged in this are, are being foolish in the sense that they have been told. They have the information, but aren't listening. And so um, the, the, the word implies a, a, really a, a spiritual diagnosis as well. For, for example, in Matthew 7, 24, I'll just listen as I read it. Jesus says there, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the rock, yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. And yet he says in comparison to that, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So notice that the foolish man isn't called foolish just because he, uh, because he didn't have knowledge of what Jesus said. He's called foolish because he had knowledge of what Jesus said and yet didn't heed it. It didn't impact his life. He just went on living the way he was living. And, and Jesus used the analogy of a man building his house upon the sand. So uh, you, you, you may not have ever lived in an area that has a lot of sand, but that's a bad thing. It's, a, it's bad uh, for the home when it's in an earthquake. In this case, the Lord uses uh, the idea of a storm. Water's going to wash all that sand away. It's going to wash away the foundation. The house is going to be condemned because that, that foundation is no longer sturdy and, and reliable. That's what Jesus compares a foolish man to. Foolish controversies, controversies in Titus 3.9 is, is, is not an uneducated uh, but earnest inquiry into the truth. It is someone who has had the truth but has, a, uh, has in a stupid or foolish fashion rejected and disregarded the truth. There are people, uh, mostly unbelievers and false teachers, who wanted Titus to engage in these foolish controversies. Of course, these people did not think of their debate as foolish, but in God's evaluation, the debate is stupid and foolish. Titus to, is to avoid foolish debates and controversies. And this is very similar to what Paul instructed uh, Timothy. If you would, you're, 2 Timothy is just one book to the left of Titus. So 2 Timothy 2, look at verses 15. You know, picking up there intentionally, verse 15 of 2 Timothy 2. Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, uh, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold vessels, gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and of some to honor and some to dishonor. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So again, just emphasizing the fact that, that, that God, here the context really um, calls uh, Timothy and by extension all pastors and by application believers to be faithful students of God's word and not to engage in these, these mere speculations, as he puts it. The, the, these, um, the, the things that we are to be done away with. Verse 23, refuse ignorant and, and foolish, foolish and ignorant speculations because they produce quarrels. There's, there's nothing good that comes out of them. Nothing at all. In fact, people, um, if we engage in these things, you can actually, oh, it's called uh, ruining the, the hearer's ears or someone, maybe not the person you're talking to, but someone who's listening to the conversation, you'll just totally turn them off from Christ by the way that you talk to the other person. So the instructions here is just to avoid them. Avoid foolish controversy. How can you tell if a, if, if a controversy debate or dispute is, is foolish or wise, whether it's good or bad? I will say more about this at the end of today's message, but since it's probably already on your mind, I thought it might be helpful to answer it briefly. A foolish controversy or debate is one that is that is not based on the careful study of God's Word. If you are carefully studying God's Word and, and debating something with God, that's uh, not, not with God, sorry, debating that with someone else, you don't debate with God, right? Um, but debating that with somebody else, that, that is an edifying conversation, at least, at least looking at it on a, on a large scale without getting into the details. So a foolish controversy is one that's not based on the careful study of God's Word. If it is based on the study, careful study of God's Word, then, then it might be a controversy. You might disagree and disagree uh, passionately with one another, but you're going to do so in a way that honors the Lord, and it's still edifying. It causes, causes you to think more carefully about God's Word. A foolish controversy or debate centers on someone's speculations, opinions, or personal insights. That, that, is, that is so critical. A foolish controversy centers on someone's speculations, opinions, or personal insights. In other words, it's not in the Word of God. And people have a lot of strong opinions. I have strong opinions. You have strong opinions. Those strong opinions don't get in the way of church unity. They're not bad until it becomes... We put those, we elevate those personal opinions, our personal interpretations on the same level or even above Scripture. And that's what causes a, a controversy to become foolish. Right? So if, if you hear someone speculating, giving their opinion or personal insight, that, that in and of itself is not wrong. Right? But, it's, but it's when they elevate that to the place of what you, you know, they're trying to convince you to believe it. That, that's where it becomes a... a um, a foolish uh, controversy, a foolish debate. And just another summary statement on this, a foolish controversy or debate produces ungodliness and quarrels. Uh, a foolish controversy produces ungodliness and quarrels. So a, a 
a controversy that is edifying is going to build up. It's going to honor the Lord. And though you might not necessarily agree on every point or agree at all in substance, yet it won't produce a fleshly quarrel. So avoid foolish controversies. Uh, look at the next word in Titus 3, nine. What, what we are called to avoid, and that is genealogies. Simply genealogies. Avoid genealogies. Now, what did Paul intend to prohibit when he talks about genealogies? Well, clearly Paul does not mean that we're to avoid studying the genealogies of Scripture. So Paul wants us to be uh, careful students of God's Word, and there's actually large portions of Scripture that contain genealogies. And, and among those are the genealogies of our Lord given in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. And those genealogies are important because it, it shows that Jesus is legally entitled to the throne of David and biologically related to King David and thus can be called a son of David. Obviously, God wants us to know the genealogical records of our Lord Jesus and a great many other people that he includes in Scripture. All those are given uh, intentionally and we we there's value to, to studying them and understanding the, the genealogies. So Paul did not... Um, intend to prohibit investigation into or discussion of, one, of, of biblical genealogies, nor did he intend to prohibit investigation or discussion into your own personal genealogy with the aim of understanding your own family history. That, that's not what he's avoiding or what we're called to avoid. So what did God want Titus to avoid? Well, the scriptures here seem, seem um to connect the idea of foolish controversy with genealogies, so that these things kind of kind of um, amalgamate together. They're separate ideas, but they, they do overlap and they are related. And, and with that, we can say that these disputes about genealogies was a was a subset of a type of foolish controversy that Paul warned Titus to avoid. I think it's helpful if we understand also understand this strongly Jewish background that the church uh, worked in, that the church existed in. And in that background, there were many false teachers who were antagonists of the true gospel. These are the ones who followed Paul around from city to city to city. And, and they, weren't, they were Judaizers. They, they believed some in Christ, but they didn't believe the same gospel, which is really not at all a gospel at all. These Jewish leaders of Paul's era had a had a special interest in speculative genealogies that would supposedly validate or invalidate certain teachers or doctrines. It's one of the ways that they built themselves up and put others down. Uh, one dictionary, a Greek uh, dictionary, notes that the rabbis had a lively interest in both their own genealogies and those of others, but especially those taken from the Old Testament, and that these played a role in the debates between the Jews and the Jewish Christians, unquote. So again, it's not purely discussing of what is written, it's taking what is written and then speculating and building upon them that was the problem. Um, the author of that particular article in the Greek dictionary goes on to conclude that the genealogies noted in Titus 3.9 are likely equivalent to the myths and endless genealogies of 1 Timothy 1.4. Don't take time to go look at that, but, but that's another thing that Paul tells Timothy to avoid myths and endless genealogies. Thus, the, the prohibition here relates to secretive interpretations of and additions to the genealogies recorded in Scripture. 
In other words, these genealogies were mythological inventions, mere speculations, and not grounded on the authority of Scripture. So why did the false teachers want to discuss genealogies or get into heated debates about their genealogies? Well, one, to protect themselves as teachers of the law. They presented themselves as teachers to, to try to show that they had superiority of knowledge. They also wanted to deplatform legitimate teachers like Paul, Timothy, and Titus while pushing themselves to the real teachers. So what were these men like? Well, we could, we could look at them, and, and they're described in Titus, uh, Titus chapter 1. Look at verses 10 to 16. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, be detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. There's another list similar to this in 1 Timothy verses 3-7. to 7. I won't take time to go look at that. You can just note that, 1 Timothy, 3, 1 Timothy 1, verses 3-7. to 7. So, genealogies. Does any of this have application to us today? Well, surely it applies to us, but... Our culture is not one to get caught up in genealogies, our particular culture that we're living in. So it's, it's not likely that this is something that you are struggling with or know someone who is struggling with. Yet, as diverse culturally and religiously as the United States is, and certainly the world is, there are surely people in this world that need to hear this message, and, and hence it is in the Scriptures. We are not to debate what the Bible calls myths uh, and endless genealogies. Um, we must avoid such uh, discussions. What's the third thing that Paul puts on the list here in Titus 3, Titus 3, 9? Simply the word strife. We are to avoid strife. Strife is a word that's common to our modern lips, our modern lives, even if you're not able to accurately define strife, I guarantee you that you would be able to identify it when you saw it. Strife is a regular feature of our lives, everyday lives. Like, like the other three words in this list of things to avoid, the Greek word here is actually given in the plural. So literally, Paul says avoid strifes, which isn't a proper English grammar, so it's translated as strife in your Bibles. But the idea is still the multiplication of all these things. There are all these things out there that want to pull you in and waste your time. And God says, don't do it. Life is full of strife. Now, the word strife means contention or wrangling, discord or quarrel. One Greek dictionary explains that strife refers to engagement in rivalry. Engagement of rivalry, especially with reference to positions taken in a matter. So here, not it particularly has the idea of, of rivalry of ideas. Strife is such a common sin in the New Testament that it uses at least eight Greek words, different Greek words, that can all be translated as strife in the English. They all have slightly different nuances, but they all could be translated as strife. 
It's just a common thing of our lives. It was common even in the scriptures, and so it's it's addressed multiple, multiple times. And even in English, there are many synonyms to strife. So it's true of our lives. It's just a common idea. Now, the strife here in Titus might be the result of the disputes about Jewish myths, genealogies, quarrels about the law, which we'll look at in a moment. But but it's this realize that it's never, ever appropriate for Christians to plunge into strife. So you can have an edifying controversy or debate, but you can't have edifying strife. Strife is just out of bounds at all times. We are called to avoid strife, all strife. Strife must never be acceptable to the Christian way of thinking. There's never a good, edifying side to strife. Our Lord strongly opposed false teachers and even harshly rebuked them, yet He never once was guilty of strife. In fact, Matthew twelve nineteen tells us that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy not to engage in strife. Now, the New American Standard Bible translates this, this Greek word as quarrel, but it's, but it's the verb form behind the, the, the word strife that we're looking at in Titus 3, 9. I'll just read it to you. There he says, and this comes from uh, Matthew uh, 12, uh, 19, 18 and 19. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel. He will not strive in that in this sinful sense. It's one of his one of his characteristics. Again, showing his sinlessness of our of our Lord God. Strife is consistently related with deeds of the flesh, not not good deeds. For example, Romans one twenty nine tells us that strife characterizes those who deny God. And I'll just read to you there Romans one twenty eight and twenty nine. And just as they did not see to fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife. And the list goes on. It is a characteristic of those who deny God. Romans 13.13 13 says, Let us behave properly in, as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. It's, it's just something we are to avoid. And there are many scriptures with that. There's the passage in Galatians 5 that calls strife a work of the, a deed of the flesh, right? And in opposition to walking with the Spirit. We are to, to exude the fruits of the Spirit, not walk in the deeds of the flesh. Strife is a deed of the flesh. And, Strife is said in good contrast to the goodwill, to goodwill, and in alignment with selfish ambition. So, if someone's guilty of strife, it, it is that they they are wanting evil will towards someone, and they have selfish ambition in their heart. That may be difficult for someone to say, but that's what Scripture does. Just listen to Philippians one, verses fifteen to seventeen, where Paul is dealing with some who are preaching Christ out of envy. He says, "Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ." even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. See how he puts those in opposition? So if you have strife for somebody, that's not goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So there is that, that little edge to strife. It's not only that you want to win the argument, but you want to put your opponent down. That's certainly... Not love. That's certainly not what God calls us to do. 
First Timothy teaches, teaches us that strife is a result of evil thinking and engagement in worthless deeds. There I'll just read First uh, Timothy to you, or a portion of it. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with words, with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus, and with the doctor conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So, beloved, as those born of God, saved, justified, and made an heir, we must not engage in strife. We must avoid strife, all strife. We must avoid strife in argumentation, strife in our marriage, strife with our children, strife at work, strife with our neighbors, strife with governing officials, even strife with our enemies. Now, how do you do that? Hmm. What if you say it's too late? Well, it's too late for all of us. We've all been guilty of strife. There's not a soul in this room that hasn't like, been guilty of strife. So let's just put that out there. None of us, none of us have reached that level yet. We will, but we have not. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we avoid strife? Well, there's, there's, in short, look to God for help. And engage, be careful, engage in good deeds, and, and you won't fall prey to strife. I'm going to take you to Romans 12 for just a minute, because I think these verses are very helpful to answering that question. And you hear from God, not from me, in, in the answer, Romans 12. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, with good. Good passage to memorize and meditate on to help avoid strife. But as I mentioned, all of us have already failed. What if we say, what if you say, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm guilty. I, I've engaged in this kind of strife. In fact, I've even enjoyed it. Right? There are there are that, that, that twisted side, that sinful side of us that actually enjoys strife like this. So what what do we do then? Well, first, I, I want to make it very clear that it's never too late to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. Look, we've all failed. The Bible says all have fallen short. There's not one that meets God's standards. So... The only way that you're going to ever be able to avoid strife is by God's doing. And, and you've got to get your strife resolved first. That is your strife with God. If you, if you don't get your strife resolved with God first, you can't, there's really no hope for you getting your strife on a human level resolved. How do you get your strife resolved with God? You confess Him as your Lord and Savior. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ 
shall be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. And if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All of it, including strife. He cleanses. He forgives. He changes. He transforms. He regenerates His children and changes us from that strife machine to love machines, so to speak. You know, remember in all this that God is faithful. And remember too, this is you need to hear me carefully, especially if you're not sure if you're saved today or not. Remember that these instructions in Titus 3 to 11 are given to Christians, those who have already been saved, transformed, regenerated, and made a child of God. To those who might not be born again, you need to just know that that your main focus needs to be turning to God. And it's going to be impossible for you to obey these instructions until Jesus takes away your strife with God. So trying to avoid strife in all of life without being regenerated is is like trying to keep your car clean and salt-free on a snowy day in northeast Ohio. You just can't do it. You just can't. It's impossible. I've lived here long enough to know that. You just can't do it. And, And... Understand, beloved, this. There are some people who try to put the cart in front of the horse. They try to do these good deeds, right? thinking that that will somehow earn them some kind, of, some kind of grace with God. And that's not grace if you earn it, but that's the, that's the language they would use. But understand, there are those people that, that do these good deeds or apparent good deeds of life without being right with God. And to those people, at the end time, Jesus is going to cast them aside. And they're going to say, well, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we help old ladies cross the street in your name? Didn't we? And they'll just list all these things that they did in the name of Jesus. And in in that passage of Scripture, Jesus says what? Depart from me, you lawless ones, I never knew you. They're not children of God. And so we just need to, as as we rally the call for for engaging in good deeds, we need to be really careful also to say, if you're not saved, these good deeds, this isn't for you. These instructions are not for you. The main thing I want you to hear is believe in Christ. And until you believe in Christ and you know that you've been regenerated, like, these, these other commands, just, just set them aside for the time being and focus on learning about who God is. And Because until He's transformed you, all your works are, are like, like filthy rags from God's perspective. Well, there is one more thing that we need to discuss before we finish today, and that is, that is uh, disputes about the law. Dispute is a synonym to strife. Again, I told you these things are, inter- are kind of interconnected or related. Um, like strife, we have a lot of experience with disputes. And here, dispute is kind of the negative connotation. Um, well, not kind of. It is a negative connotation. The Greek word dispute literally means to speak of battles. It was a, was a word that used about literal battles in, in the Greek language. Now, in the New Testament, it is only used to speak of battles fought with act, with, without actual weapons. So here you're talking about word battles, ideological battles. It, it, the opposite of dispute is peaceable. 
Now, it's interesting to note that one of the requirements for an elder is that he be peaceable. But it, what's interesting here is this, this word dispute um, is, is maxe. Um, elders must be amaxos. That is, a, it's an adjective from this word. That is, it's taking the Greek, the Greek letter A, which is a, kind of a used in negation or oration, and it's putting that in front of the same word. So to be peaceable is to be opposite of this idea of dispute or, or battling. We must avoid battles. Like strife, disputes are spoken of, in a neg- spoken of negatively in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul says there, For even when we came to Mas- into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. In 2 Timothy 2, 23, uh, Paul says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The word quarrel there is that word battle. It's the same word, maxe. In James 4, 1, there Paul, uh, sorry, James says, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? So not only is the actual battle sinful, but, but the, the root of that battle is also sinful. It's, it's these, what James says, these, uh, these pleasures which wage war in your members that is in, within yourself. But notice Paul doesn't just say avoid disputes, but avoid disputes about the law. Now, the context of Titus mentions genealogies, false teachers who have the circumcision. Um, it's obvious that a lot of the opponents were either Jewish or influenced by Jewish thinking. When I say opponents, they, are not, they were opponents to the gospel and to clear teaching. Therefore, when Paul wrote uh, the law in, in, in Titus 3, eight, um, sorry, 3.9, when he wrote that, he was talking about Disputes about the law of Moses. Um, God does not want his people to be engaged in verbal battles about the Mosaic law. I don't know why it has to why people complicate this. Battles are not permitted. Battles about the Mosaic law. You want to get a heated discussion going, you start talking about the role of the Mosaic law in within evangelicalism within the church today. Now, you can have an edifying discussion, and we must, because it is, it is something we, have, we need to talk about. But we must not battle. God doesn't prohibit edifying debates or discussions about the law. He prohibits battles. God exhorts us to be careful workers when we're studying the Word of God. And the Mosaic Law is a large portion of the Old Testament, spoken of a lot, even in the New Testament. So we need to understand it rightly. And, and therefore, because it's part of Scripture, there's nothing wrong with, with studying Scripture or discussing Scripture or debating Scripture. Part of the learning process uh, is discussing what we are learning, bouncing ideas off each other, and in, the, and in the spirit of humility, sharpening one another's thinking about Scripture. This may, invi- this may involve lively and, and passionate debate with others, and, and, but we must never allow the debate to edge into verbal combat of a dispute. Now, talk about some implications here. It seems that the Mosaic Law was and continues to be a hot topic of debate. It was for the early church. I told you I'd take you back to Titus, I mean, sorry, Acts 15. So let's go back there. Acts 15. You see how vigorously it was was debated. 
I mean, there were, there were, it was a heated, heated discussions. Okay. Um, we read verses one to eleven, or actually one to twelve. So I'm going to pick up at verse thirteen. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, "Brethren, listen to me." Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his own name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch, with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, Silas, and leading men from among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. I'm pause there just a minute. Notice that this is a perfect setup for the early church to say, yes, you need to obey the Mosaic law. Or they could say, you know what? The ceremonial part of the law is done. But you need, there are some portions of the law you still need to maintain or to do, like Sabbath observance, for example. Just one of those examples. What do they say? No mention of that. They say don't burden them. Now, I'm going to read the letter that they wrote. It's important. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, sorry, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and, and Cecilia, uh, Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Silas, Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Notice that. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. The end of the letter. Many people today want to write a P.S. P.S. What we meant was, but that's not there. Now, obviously, in this little bit of time, I can't settle all your questions about the law and the role of the law in the life of a believer. The law is good. The law is a tutor. The law leads us to Christ. I am not putting down the law. What I'm doing is elevating what Christ has done for us. Christ didn't come to abolish the law he came to fulfill it and having fulfilled it on our behalf we are to trust him we are not under the mosaic law beloved 
you know, see see what what even how they write the letter. These are Jewish men that wrote this letter to to Gentiles, and, and they even admit that they haven't they themselves haven't been able to keep the law. Right? You can't do it. But but the, taking it back to the, to the context of Titus. We can study the law of God, discuss it, debate it, teach it, learn about it, and we should, but don't fight over it. Don't dispute over it. Don't beat down your fellow believer over it because they take a different view of it than you do. All that's clearly out of bounds and clearly wrong. Remember that the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church and the Holy Spirit thought that the burden of the law should not be placed upon Gentile believers. Don't take my word for it. Look at Scripture, and because we have the we have their their analysis and their letter, we have it twice right? in the same chapter. It's there. Many people don't want to accept it, but remember that there are only four essential things about the law that that the believers in Jer- Jerusalem, the elders there, and the apostles brought out four essentials right? of the whole law. Now, obviously, there's there's other things to be discussed here, but but the point is. That the Sabbath observance isn't among those things, uh, one of those hotly contested things, and even to our day in some societies. If, if God wanted us to observe it, He would have put it there. It would have been easy. And if it was one of the essentials, we would do it. No question about it. Paul says a lot more about this in his letter to Galatians, but, but why I bring this in there is just to say that there, there are some things about the law that are just settled. And you can discuss it and talk about it. But if someone is trying to convince you that you are under the law. And, and it gets to the place where it's becoming this like this, this battle. Disengage. You go forward. Right? That's sinful territory. Disengage. All you can do is point them to what the elders, the apostles have, have uh, deemed about this. So again, there's a lot more to say. And I may have raised more questions than I answered. Uh, but you can always ask me. Um, I just uh, don't want the message to be, it's a lengthy message, and I don't want it to be an even longer message to, to deal with those those things. These are the four things, if you go back to, to Titus 3, Titus 3, 9, these are the four things that we are called to avoid. Um, Foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, and disputes about the law. Why? Why? Paul adds there at the end, for they are unprofitable and worthless. There's nothing good about them. No redemptive character in them. There's there's nothing. They're, they're without any spiritual benefit. There's no spiritual profit. Put it another way, these things are vain. And, and notice again that the, there's a contrast between verses 8 and 9. And and although verses nine are not completely all about words, it is mostly about words. So there's almost like a, a contrast between actions. Go do the good deeds. Be careful to do the good deeds. And then on the other hand, of just talk, just corrosive talk that is worthless and no good. So it's almost like there's contrast between go and do, and just worthless talk. Avoid the worthless talk. Do the good. Right? And and keep in mind the good does involve proclaiming Christ, so it does involve talk. But but there is like this contrast set up, I think, in the context. 
So how do you tell the difference between an edifying debate to engage in and foolish controversies, genealogies, strifes, and disputes about the law which must be avoided? Just give these to you very quickly. Check your motives. And that's hard to do. But prayerfully, ask God to search you, know you, check your motives. Why are you engaged in the, in the debate to begin with? Are you seeking to truly honor and glorify God? Many engage in debate on a selfish ambition. Uh, to honor God, you must enter the debate with the same attitude that is needed to confront sin. Uh, although it may, you may not be confronting sin, that's the same kind of attitude. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you are spiritual. Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. So you could just, I, the idea there, when you debate, debate in, the, in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Because in a debate, there's lots of temptation to say something sinful, to say something heated, to allow the works of the flesh, just to zip in and before you know that you said something that uh, you're going to have to ask forgiveness for. So check your motives. Check your motives. Um, to honor God, you've got to make sure you're in doctrine alignment with the scriptures and that your actions would be seen by God as good deeds, something he would commend. Secondly, be careful to practice the one another's, the one another commands in scripture. And I, I won't go through all of these, but just realize that debate, even even passionate debate, does not give you an exception or time out from the one another commands in Scripture. What I mean by the one another's. Love one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. Be members of one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Don't build up, but build up and don't tear down one another. Be like-minded to one another. There are just literally lots of these one another commands that, that believers are called uh, to, to do and engage in. These are the good deeds that God calls us to that we just can't set this aside. Um, thirdly, be careful to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. As I mentioned, as, as, um, as we get into these discussions, we believe something passionately. It's very easy for voices to rise and then for the emotions then to, fl to flood in. And before you know it, you're walking in the flesh instead of according to the Spirit. So many Christians fail at the basics, including many elders and church leaders who fail to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in church meetings. Some church meetings are so caustic. Why? Because the leaders have failed to lead the meeting in a way that's edifying, in a way that's full of the fruit of the Spirit. How many Christians demonstrate the deeds of the flesh all the while arguing a finer point of theology? Right? Just apply this kind of, kind of even where you're at. Um, you know, when you're correcting your, uh, a son or daughter, do you do so in a way that where the deeds of the flesh are just like pouring out of you? You might be right. The child should have listened or whatever the circumstance is, but it's like the way that you're going about the correction just just messes it all up. Right? So be careful with these things. And then if you find yourself getting in a situation where you're like, boy, this is getting, this is getting kind of heated, diffuse it. How do you diffuse a dispute? By prayer. By just asking the person, whoever you're talking with, like things are getting a little too heated. Let's just, we both want to honor God. So let's just pray together. And if it's appropriate in that setting, particularly if it's your wife you're debating, your spouse or husband or a child, hold their hand and don't squeeze it like you're angry with them. I mean, hold it in a loving way. <laughs> because it's really hard to be angry with someone when you're touching them in a loving way. 
Okay, so hold her hand, pray together, and and ask God to help you right, to to not sin by engaging in the things He tells us to avoid. I want to close by by reading to you um, Spurgeon's wise counsel to his congregation. And I'll just quote him here. There are certain professing Christians who spend half their lives in fighting about nothing at all. There is no more in church over it. They will go through the world as if they have found a great, found out a great secret. It really is not of any consequence whatsoever. But having made the discovery, they judge everybody by their new found fad. And so spread a spirit that is contrary to the spirit of Christ. The old schoolmen did a world of mischief by their incessant discussion of subjects of no practical importance. And our churches suffer much from petty wars over obtruse points and unimportant questions. After everything has been said that can be said, neither party is any the wiser. Therefore, the discussion no more promotes knowledge than love. And it is foolish to sow in so barren a field questions upon points wherein Scripture is silent, upon mysteries that belong to God alone, upon prophecies of doubtful interpretation, and upon the modes of observing human ceremonials, all are all foolish, and wise men avoid them. Our business is neither to ask nor answer foolish questions, but to avoid them altogether. If we observe the Apostles' precept to be careful to engage in good deeds, we shall find ourselves far too much occupied with profitable business to take much interest in unworthy contentions and needless strivings. Unquote. We are to be engaged in good deeds and avoid avoid the things that are worthless. Time's just too short. Uh, next week we'll see what happens when People within the church don't avoid such errors. They don't listen to these admonitions. They actually engage in the things that we are called to avoid. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are thank you, so thankful that you are a God of love, mercy and compassion. Lord, that you chose to redeem people for yourself, not people who have earned it, but we have not. We have not done anything to earn your grace. But you have chosen to love us. And we've believed in you. And we just want to exalt you and, and just thank you that you save all those who call upon your name and, and even pray, Lord, that that with even in this room that there might be some who who not sure of where they're at spiritually, Lord, that they would call upon you even today, that today would be the day of, of their salvation. And Lord, for those who are your children, help us, Lord God, to be careful to engage in good deeds and to avoid the things that are worthless and unprofitable. And some of these things, like strife, Lord God, are so easy for us to engage in. Even as believers, we, we hate that we do these things, and so we just pray that you would continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds and through the power of your Spirit that you would help us to avoid strife. Avoid these worthless things. And, and where we, we fall, Lord, I just ask that you would help us to confess our sins, that you would wash us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and give us the strength and fortitude and determination to avoid strife in the future. Lord, may we be a people who are stand for the truth and yet are peaceable people. Lord, that we would be full of grace and truth, just even as our Lord Jesus was. 
In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.